All right. Well, hey, before we get started with today's message, I just want to give you a quick preview. Next week, we're kicking off a new series called Trending Faith, and we're going to be examining what a deep faith in a meme culture uh, looks like. In other words, we are now living in a time where we communicate through a few words and a picture. And the challenge with this when it comes to Christianity is we can throw something up on social media and say, God is love, and yet that person that's grieving or sees tragedy in the world is incredibly confused by that because he's love, and he was also incredibly wrathful or full of wrath when it came to what took place on the cross. And so there's a disconnect when you try to take 66 books that we call the Bible and theology that's rich and helps us understand the depth of who Jesus is and to put that all together in a simple photo and to pass it off on social media. So what then does deep faith look like when it comes to following? after Jesus. So that's where we're going over the next few weeks. But today, uh, we're going to wrap up our summer series, Jesus in the Psalms. So I want to welcome back to the stage one more time, Pastor Doug Bullock. Hey, let's take a minute and uh, appreciate Rob and his leadership and all the work he's doing. Let's take a minute and just thank him for all of his work he's doing here. Thanks, man. Appreciate you, buddy. Appreciate your prayers. Hey, you know, one of the things I get asked because I interact with pastors and churches a lot, one of the things I get asked is how do you think churches are doing? How do you think Christians are doing? I, I just how, do, how are people doing these days? And have you noticed we've had a lot thrown at us? Have you noticed that? You know, everything from a pandemic and then the economy, inflation, um, uh, issues like racism and the riots and then uh, gender issues. And so it's just been, it's been, it hasn't been easy. Would you agree with me on that? Just hasn't been easy. In fact, if I... If I would articulate how people are doing, I'd say a lot of people are just confused. Confused as to what is truth out there? What is really true? And a lot of people are alone, just kind of, just kind of hanging out by themselves, maybe even in their home a lot, not really connecting with people. And um, a lot of people are feeling battered, afraid to kind of raise their head. Like if I say something, I might say something wrong. If I raise my head, I might get canceled or something like that, whatever that might look like. And people are afraid. Fear really has to do with the uncertainty of the future. Like if the future is uncertain, it's easy to be afraid. And of course now the future seems uncertain, doesn't it? I had somebody say to me the other day, I'm feeling hopeless. That's just a really bad place to be, to feel hopeless. And so the question comes up, what's the answer? What's the solution? Where do we go for help? And ultimately, it probably wouldn't surprise you, but I would say we want to run to God and reinforce our connection with God. And oftentimes the way that happens, the way that God reinforces our connection with him and we with him is through his word. We want to learn to rely on what God has said in his word. Which leads me to Psalm 93. If I were to summarize Psalm 93, it's just a really short psalm. I would say this, God rules the world, and because he rules the world, we can rely on his word. Because our God is a God who is master of this world. He, he's, we'd use the word sovereign, he's the ruler of this world. We can rely on his word. Because his kingdom rules, we can have courage from what he says. So what I want to do this morning is first talk out of Psalm 93 about how God rules the world and then briefly talk about how we can rely upon his word and then I want to give you four thoughts 
four thoughts that come from the first part of the psalm about how we can rely on his word. And that's mostly what I'm going to talk about is how we can rely on his word. And we're going to dip back into the first part of Psalm 93. Okay, Psalm 93. Let me start reading in verse 1. The Lord reigns. The word reigns there is, is the verb form of king. And so basically what it's saying is the Lord is king. Or we'd say the Lord is sovereign. Someone asks you if you believe in the sovereignty of God. You should say, yes, of course. He's king. The Lord reigns. He's robed in majesty. The Lord is robed in majesty and armed with strength. We'll come back to this verse in a few minutes. But he's armed with strength. He's the king. Now, because he's secure, the world is secure. Look at the next part of verse 1. The world is firmly established and cannot be moved. So the world we live in is not going to be moved apart from his moving it. The world is secure because he is secure. You know, history is filled with a lot of kings that aren't secure, and they create chaos around themselves. King Herod one of, the early, or one of the kings of Israel around the time of Christ, he wasn't secure, and the way he lived out his insecurity is by killing all of his relatives. Creates chaos when you're not secure. I read recently that six oligarchs, you know what an oligarch is? An oligarch in Russia is a ruler with a lot of money, businessman, kind of has a lot of influence, a lot of money. I read recently that six of them died under... Mysterious circumstances. Maybe there's an insecure ruler creating a little bit of chaos, you think? But God is a secure ruler. And as a result, our world is firmly established. It cannot be moved. Verse 2, he begins to talk about his throne. Your throne was established long ago. You are from all eternity. That's pretty cool. Now, in verses 3 and 4, he talks about problems, and he uses the metaphor of the seas. The seas have lifted up, O Lord. The seas have lifted up their voice. The seas have lifted up their pounding waves. So you think about people who live near the Sea of, of Galilee or the Mediterranean Sea in the pounding waves, and he says, hey, these are problems. But look at verse 4. Mightier than the thunder of the great waves. Mightier than the breakers of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. Okay, very briefly, he's telling us God rules the world. God rules the world. Therefore, because he rules the world, we can rely on his word. Look at this next verse, verse 5. Your statutes stand firm. Holiness adorns your house for endless days, O Lord. The word statutes refers to his promises, his prophecies, his prohibitions, his proverbs. Any more P words you can think of? <laughs> All the stuff that God has said. His statutes, his statutes stand firm. So we believe, as followers of Christ, we believe that the Old Testament was given to us by God and it contains the very words of God. It is the very word of God. And we believe that about the New Testament. So God has spoken. God has revealed himself and who he is to us through the scriptures, through the writings. They are also the words of mankind. They were written by men and they convey the truth of God. So we would say they were written by man and written by God. They are his statutes. Now, by the way, that's pretty unique. Like I know a lot of you are used to that idea, but that's pretty unique. Like Confucius never claimed to be inspired by God or that the writings were inspired by God. And, and, and Buddhism, they have a whole different kind of thought about God. So the writings of Buddha are not 
like the revealed word of the creator. In Hinduism, they, they depend upon the Veda, and the Veda was written by one of the gods, and they would also say that as a Hindu, you can find the truth within you. You don't necessarily have to go to the Veda. And Islam would say that its truth comes from God, but that was 600 years after Christ. So my point is this, that the oldest revealed word from God that exists is like the Old Testament, followed by the New Testament. So this is a word from God, and because it's a word from God, it's firm. You can trust in it. You can lean on something that's reliable. It's dependable. It's, it's firm. So the question comes, how do I rely on God? How do I rely on God through his word? And I want to give you four thoughts that I'm going to bring out of the first part of Psalm 93. Number one, number one, make it personal. When you read the scriptures, make it personal. Make it relevant to your life. Because God cares personally about you and about you. Oh, y'all. Psalm 93, verse 1, it says it this way. It says, the Lord reigns. And the word for Lord is the personal name of God, Yahweh. Remember back when Moses was in front of the burning bush about 1,500 years before Christ? Moses is in front of the burning bush, and the burning bush speaks to Moses and tells him that he needs to release the people from Israel. And Moses is like, okay. And then he says, but who shall I tell them sent me? And God says, my name is Yahweh. Now, some of your Bibles have it translated as I am who I am or am that I am. We're not exactly sure how they pronounced this syllables, this set of syllables, Y. H-W-H, but this was God's personal name. Some of your translations call it Jehovah, some of them call it the Lord. Point being this, that God says, I want you to know my name. I want you to get personal with me. Uh, some time ago, my wife and I were out at the retreat where I uh, spent some time, uh, and uh, we were the only ones there. And there's a senator in South Carolina by the name of Tim Scott. He's the only black senator. I think he's the only black Republican senator in, in the Senate. And uh, Senator Scott shows up. He has some friends at the retreat, and he wanted a tour with the retreat. So my wife and I got to spend an hour and a half or so giving Senator Scott a tour of the retreat. And I kept saying, Senator Scott this, and Senator Scott this, and oh, Senator Scott, you'll like this, and oh, Senator Scott, you got to see this. And never once did he say, hey, just... Call me Tim. Never said that. You see, we're not buddies. And he didn't know me well enough or have the desire or want to get personal. If he said, hey, just call me Tim, I'd say, great, you know. Can I have your cell number? Can I tell you what I think? God says this. I want to be personally connected with you. You are my creation. 
I want to know you. I want you to know me. I want us to be personal. Now, that might be hard for some of you. If you didn't have a great relationship with dad, sometimes that's hard. I, um, I knew that my father loved me. My father died when he was 10. I knew that he loved me. But he didn't communicate a lot. So I don't remember a lot of communication coming from him or even having a lot of conversations. I do remember one, we were up in the garage and my dad was working on his car and he pulled out a rusty bolt and he said, can you find a nut for that bolt? I don't think he said, can you? I think he said, go find a nut for that bolt. <laughs> and so I went down in the basement and the basement was dark and damp and there was this bucket of old rusty nuts and bolts. And I rifled through it a little bit, tried to find the nut that went on that bolt and I couldn't find it, you know? And so I went back upstairs and said, Dad, I can't find it. And I remember him saying this to me, and this probably guided my life. He said, son, you never say can't. <laughs> and so that, anybody else have an experience? Like, you don't have to raise your hand, but, you know, that'd be kind, kind of a dominant word. You never say can't. You never say can't. And so it might be hard for you to say, hey, God actually personally cares about you, but he does. When Moses got ready to release the people, God said this in Exodus chapter 32. He said this about himself, and you can apply this to yourself. Let's see, Exodus chapter 32. Do you have the words up there? There we go. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying because of their slave drivers, and I'm concerned about them. I want you to see those three words. I've seen, I've heard, and I'm concerned. God sees what you're going through. He sees it, he hears it, and he's concerned. Make it personal. I want to give you a verse to show you how you can make it personal. John chapter 3, verse 36. Whoever, don't you love the word whoever in the Bible? There are some parts of the Bible that just apply to the Jews mainly, and we kind of secondarily apply them to ourselves. Some parts just apply to the disciples, and we kind of secondarily live them. But whenever you see the word whoever, it's like, oh, that's for me. And I love this. Whoever believes in the Son has, present tense, eternal life. I love that, don't you? Put your name in there. When you, Fred, when you, Bob, when you, Margaret, when you, Martha, believe in the Son, you have. When you believe that Jesus is who he says he is, he's going to do what he says he's going to do. When you believe him, you have eternal life. But if you choose to reject the Son, you won't see life. Make that personal. All right, second thought. Expect God to be powerful. Expect God to be powerful. He is powerful. Expect him, when you read his word, to do that which is powerful. Psalm 93, verse 1. The Lord reigns. He's robed in majesty. Uh, the idea of majesty is the idea of, a, of something that rises up in front of you. It's referred to smoke. It's referring to seas. It's even referring to pride that rises. And so the Lord is majestic. He's, majest, uh, he's filled with majesty. If, uh, I don't know, uh, if you and I were to see him in some kind of visible manifestation, we'd be like, oh, it probably this is going to take me a little while. Oh, there we go. A little while longer than it used to. We'd go, Oh, right? Majestic. Probably go, oh. <laughs> I 
The Lord is robed in majesty. He's armed or girded with strength. Um, in those days, they would all wear, I mean, basically the guys would wear dresses all the time. Uh, the girls wore dresses too, but uh, in those days they had long robes, right? And so you had this long robe around you, and if you uh, wanted to do some manual labor, you wanted to run, you wanted to engage in warfare, you had to gird yourself, you had to gird up your loins, and you would do that by kind of rolling up uh, the skirt, we might say, and you'd tie it up here, or you'd put a belt around it, and you'd gird up your loins. And when you girded yourself up, you were ready to do whatever had to be done, to fight, to work, to run. And so the Lord puts strength around his belt. He's ready to go to work. He's ready to fight on your behalf. He's girded himself with strength. Now, one of the fascinating things is God does his work when we can't do our work. Like when we're at the end of our road, God really shows up. God wants to work in your life and you might feel hopeless and God is ready to do something. Romans chapter 8 puts it this way. This is how you make it personal. You say, we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him. So the question is, am I loving God? Make it personal, right? First make it personal. This applies to me. Am I loving God? Well, if I'm loving God in the midst of my situation, God wants to do something good. God wants to do good in your life in the midst of your situation. God wants to do something good in the chaos that you're going through right now. God wants to do something good in your life. I remember the first three years as pastor here at Eastern Hills. During those first three years, I would often find myself, believe it or not, just flat on the floor, face down. And I would be like, God, this is hopeless. God, I'm desperate. God, you have got to show up and do something. God, help. God, I can't do anything. <laughs> I kind of lived on the floor. And, uh, you know, when I would say, I can't do anything, I need you, I'm desperate, though, that's when God would whisper, it's about time. You know, I've been trying to communicate this to you for years. It's about time you got there. But God did something good. He wants to do good in your life. But you got to get desperate. And God worked powerfully. God worked in my life. Like God did things in the first three years of my ministry that, that, that changed my life permanently. And the rest of my years, I have been so much more of a happy person I've been so much more of a contented person because God did good through brokenness. He wants to work powerfully in your life. And then ultimately, God did good in our church because he did good in me. Does that make sense? God wants to do something powerful in your life. So expect him to. He wants to do good. All right, number three. Number three, develop a perspective that is eternal. Develop a perspective that is eternal. Look at 93 verse 2. 
Look what it says. Your throne was established long ago. You are from all eternity. (laughs) This is kind of a crazy concept. You see, we know that matter and time began. So when the world began, time began. And what the psalmist is saying is before time began, God was there. But it's hard to talk about before and time. You know, before, before, you can't talk about before if you don't talk about time. You know what I mean? This is all very confusing. It's like the guy who said to God, he said, God, what's a second to you? And God said, a million years. You heard this? True story, I think. And then the guy said, well, what's a penny to you? And God said, a million dollars. The guy thought for a minute, said, God, can you give me a penny? And God said, in a second. (laughs) So it's all very confusing to think about eternity past. But somewhere in the past, before the world was created, God had a plan. And we are in the middle of his plan. And you got to keep that in mind. Sometimes I look back on the beginning of the plan or or closer back to the beginning of the plan and I see the resurrection of Christ and that gives me confidence and hope and help because I go, okay, the only way the grave could have gotten empty is that Jesus rose from the grave and so I have faith because of the resurrection. Sometimes I look back just, you know, 40 or 50 years and I say, God gave me a wife. This beautiful woman who's been so great for me and then God gave me these little things called children. And that's been kind of a mixed bag, you know, good and bad. No, no, it's been, <laughs> it's been great too. And God's been so good in the past. And then I think about the future. And I go, one day there's a new heaven and a new earth and no more sorrow and pain and anger and, and injustice and death. You got to get this eternal perspective. There's the past, there's the future. Let me, get, let me show you how that applies. James chapter 4, verse 10. Look at this verse. Humble yourselves before the Lord. You, you, you apply this. this. This has to do with you. You humble yourself. If I humble myself before the Lord, what will he do? He'll lift me up. When you apply that, you say, you know what? I'm going to forgive others. I'm going to humble myself. I'm going to not receive revenge. I'm going to humble myself. I'm going to pray fervently. I'm not going to, I'm going to humble myself. I'm going to serve. I'm going to humble myself. I'm going to listen and not dominate conversations. I'm going to humble myself. I'm going to care for others and actually try to put the needs of others in front of the needs of myself. I'm going to humble myself and God is going to do something eternally. I don't know when. I don't know how. I don't know where. I don't know exactly how this is going to play out, but he's going to lift me up. You know, it might be that there are a lot of people who are being lifted up now who in eternity won't be lifted up at all. And it might be that there are a lot of people 
who really just kind of maintain a low profile and serve and help and love, who one day are going to be lifted up. So, so you've got to have an eternal perspective. You've got to make it personal. You want to see God as powerful, who's going to do powerful things. You've got to have an eternal perspective. Let me just give you one more. Okay. Allow God to be confrontational. There are times when God will say things that kind of confront us. And you're going to go, he can't say that, but he can. He can. Look at the psalmist. The seas have lifted up, O Lord. The seas have lifted up their voice. The seas have lifted up their pounding waves. The seas is a metaphor for problems. The Mediterranean Sea, the Sea of Galilee, you'd get out there and fishing and the waves would come up. And what the psalmist is saying is, hey, there are problems out there. You'd agree that there are problems out there. I was reading about the mental health of people in our country. Did you realize, talking about problems, did you realize that um, the second leading cause of death for 10 to, I think it was 10 to 14 year olds, you know what it is? Did somebody say suicide? Yeah. Second leading cause of death for 25 to 34 year olds. Somebody say suicide. See, we have mental health issues. I, I heard recently that in 44 states, 44 states, the largest mental health facility they have is a jail. And then good. So we got issues. But look at what it says next. Mightier than the thunder of the great waters, mightier than the breakers of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. God is bigger than our problems. <laughs> now you might wonder, understandably, why didn't God do something about it, you know? Sometimes it's even hard to know how to talk about God and problems. Like what language should we use? He's sovereign. Does that mean like he causes them? The word sovereignty, by the way, the word sovereignty means that he's the ruler. It doesn't tell us how he rules. It means that he's in charge, but it doesn't tell us what kind of person he is who is in charge. In other words, he could be like a control freak, sovereign, or he could be a loosey-goosey sovereign. It doesn't really tell us. The other day I was down, uh, in, um, down by the retreat where, I, where I've been uh, spending some time. And as I'm driving down there, it's a fairly rural area, and um, this young lad came up driving an ATV going the other way. And he might have been 11 or 12 years of age. He didn't have a shirt on, didn't have a helmet on. And he's going like 35, 40 miles an hour. <laughs> and behind him, there's a kid standing on his, you know, putting his arms on his shoulders, and that kid must have been eight, nine. And I'm thinking, oh my word, that thing, if it hits a spot in the road, goes off the shoulder, weaves into the other lane, it's going to be difficult. Now, if that happens, would we say that God did it? Well, like, probably not. We'd say the kids did it, right? Well, would, would he say that God knew it was going to happen? 
Well, yeah. Would we say that God could have stopped it? Well, sure. I mean, God could have stopped it a thousand ways. So we'd end up saying that God allows it. And so we have a world in which he is king, but in which he allows problems. And so you might ask why. Why does he allow problems? And one answer I have is, well, if you knew everything God knows, you'd do what God does. And so a lot of times I say, I I don't know. But I do know this. Sometimes God allows problems because through problems he confronts our idols. The seas not only refer to problems, but in the thinking of the culture of the day, outside of the Jews, there was a God that they worshipped called Baal. And Baal was an idol. Here's some of the images we have of Baal. Baal was the one who, in their mind, owned the seas. Not in the Jewish mind, but in the mind of the people around the Jews, Baal conquered the seas. The sea god was named Yom, and Baal conquered Yom. And so he was the god of thunder who conquered the seas. And so when it says the Lord is mighty, he's basically saying God is greater than the idols. God is greater than the idols. And Moses proved it by crossing the Red Sea. Jesus proved it by walking on the sea. He demonstrated I'm greater than Baal, I'm greater than the idols. What God does, often through his word, is he confronts us with our idols. Matthew chapter 6. Here's an example. Don't worry saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the pagans run after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. You know, not only do the pagans run after these things, but the Christians also run after these things. Have you noticed that? You see, I think in our country... Maybe you don't want to admit this. I'll admit it. In our country, we make idols out of comfort, out of security, out of food, drink, housing, good retirement accounts. Those things become idols. Comfort is our idol. Anybody want to say amen to that? No, you don't. You don't. Because it's like too convicting. And when financial pressure comes into our life, It confronts our idol. And Jesus says to us, who is really Lord of your life? Look at what he says in the following verse. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. I just find that through the scriptures, God confronts the idols in my life and gives me an opportunity to repent and turn around and just recognize that as much as I don't want to be, I'm kind of an idol worshiper. Sometimes we make the country, our country, America, an idol. Maybe you make your children an idol. I don't know, it's just easy to do, isn't it? And through the scriptures, God will use problems to confront our idols. Okay, let me give you these four words just as we finish. God wants us to have a connection with him through his word. That's personal. 
where he personally communicates to us his truth. He wants it to be powerful. God wants to powerfully move and work in our lives. He wants to do something powerful that you can't do. He wants to do it. He wants, he wants us to have a perspective that's eternal. Trusting in him to do that which remains undone. He'll do it. And he wants us to allow him to be confrontational. Let God confront your idols so that you will find ultimate and greater happiness in him and with others. Let's pray together. Father God, I pray that you would continue your work in our lives. Thank you that you are a God who works. And thank you that you can continue this work. I pray that we would be open to allow you to do that which you want to do. I pray that we would take in your word with a sense of eagerness, a desire to hear you speak, a desire to see you move, a willingness to wait, an expectation to even come to repentance so that we might find greater and more profound happiness in you. Thank you for all that you've done. Thank you for how you're working here at Eastern Hills. Thank you that you are a great God. And it's our joy and privilege to know you. In Christ's name we pray, amen.